The Gist is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price. All Casper mattresses come with free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. Right now, get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash gist and using the promo code gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. Thursday, May 26th, 2016, from Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hillary Clinton's private email server was not permitted, and if permission was asked for, it would not have been allowed. So I think we need to amend the phrase, it's easier to ask for forgiveness afterward than permission beforehand. You know that phrase? We have to tack on another phrase. Yes, unless you're the only thing between Donald Trump and the White House. Stop screwing around with your emails. Oh, had she known. That report says that the last five secretaries of state did not follow official email protocols. But remember that argument that Trump advisor Stephen Moore used to excuse Trump's not releasing his taxes? You know, I think that, what, 40 presidents never released their tax returns. So uh, I don't think that there's any kind of moral obligation to do this. So he ignored the fact that there was no federal income tax for the first 27 presidents and that the last eight presidents have shown their income taxes. So I think HRC has a new spin on this. Hillary needs to say that the last five, no, 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 no. The previous 66 secretaries of state did not follow official State Department email protocol. Not Dean Rusk, not Henry Kissinger. I assume Seward's folly referred to him clicking on an attachment from an unknown sender. He did not follow email protocol. Martin Van Buren, a.k.a. Martin Inbox Van Zero, cared not a whit for proper email protocol. It goes all the way back to Thomas Jefferson, who, according to Federalist email number 12, actually elected to BCC himself on all sent items. Not so sage of Monticello. Now, as far as Bernie Sanders, he has agreed to debate Trump, which is unconventional, but it's pretty awesome if you ask me. So Sanders does need to prep, of course, because how do you rebut assertions like like this one that Donald Trump made today? If you go to various places in California, wind is killing all of the eagles. You know, if you shoot an eagle, you kill an eagle. They want to put you in jail for five years. And yet the windmills are killing hundreds and hundreds of eagles. One of the most beautiful, one of the most treasured birds. And they're killing by the hundreds and nothing happens. So wind is, you know, it's a problem. Oh, yeah. Wind is a problem. Now, if I were Bernie, here's how I'd answer. You know, caring about the eagles is the sort of problem the 1% cares about. But there are a lot of other birds who are getting killed. According to Smithsonian Magazine, there are between 140 and 328,000 birds dying each year from turbines. What about the red-tailed hawks? What about the American kestrels? What about the estimated 2,500 western meadowlarks? What about the meadowlarks? This is what the millionaires and billionaires won't tell you. They won't tell you about the Meadowlarks. On the show today, another graduate of James Madison High School, besides Senator Sanders, it's Senator Charles Schumer. He is on to discuss his bill that would allow families to sue foreign governments like Saudi Arabia that have foreknowledge of terrorism. And in the spiel, Donald Trump takes just one more question. But first, it's the New Yorker's James Sirwicky on a topic near and dear to Bernie Sanders also, breaking up the banks.
If there's a defining issue of this election that separates Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary, it is their attitudes towards the big banks. Bernie's plan, really straightforward, break up the banks that are too big to fail. Hillary Clinton's attitude is A, accept some speaking fees from the banks. Sorry, I just had to. But B, regulate the banks, deleverage the banks, make the banks provide living wills, make the banks submit to and pass stress tests to make sure they don't fail, and always have the possibility of breaking them up as an in-case-of-emergency break-glass-type option. That'd be too late, says Senator Sanders, who also has the benefit of a nice clean phrase, break up the banks. James Sarawicki, who writes the financial page column for The New Yorker, is here. So, Jim, is the idea of too big to fail, breaking up the banks, is that actually useful? Is that actually realistic in the real world? Breaking up the banks is realistic in a sense that it could be done. Mm -hmm. I think the problem with the slogan is that it implies that breaking up the banks is really the solution to all of our sort of problems with Wall Street. And I think there are two problems with that. One is that it's not obvious to me that having 20 or let's say 40 pretty big banks would make the system significantly safer than having, let's say, 10 or 15 really big banks. So I don't think that in and of itself is enough. And I think the other thing is that I think it really underplays uh, both the importance of regulation, because even after you break up the banks, you're still going to have to have really complex regulations. And I think the second thing is I think it really makes people think that the regulations we've put in place since 2010 have been totally ineffective. And I think that's completely wrong. I think they actually have made the system safer. There's still a lot to be done. The system is safer. It's less risky. The banks are less powerful and less profitable. And so I think actually a nuanced and and complicated system of regulation is not in and of itself a bad idea. Do you think that the regulations made the banks less big and less willing to take on risk or the fact that they got so badly burned by the bubble did that? There's definitely a... uh, a combination of the two, but uh, no, I, I definitely think regulation has made a, a big played a big role. Dodd Frank, the yeah, much Dodd Frank, the much loathed, and and the simplest way they've done it is simply by by requiring the banks to carry more capital, right? So in a sense, now more reserves, although it's more complex than that. But basically, banks have to carry more capital now, and and by saying the bigger you you get, the higher your capital requirements are. They basically have made being really big less profitable than mm-hmm. it once was. And, and they've also reduced the amount of leverage banks can use, which reduces bank profits. So I think those two things have in and of themselves made banks safer and less profitable. So when, when you hear, when you report on all the big banks that have to essentially present a living will, which is their plan for, you know, if things go south, how they'll unravel and... Depending on how you look at it, none of the banks actually passed, but I think they said Citibank. Citibank. Citigroup might have, yeah. Might have been okay, but still it's not a great situation. So sometimes that's reported as, oh my God, we're still screwed. On the other hand, they are doing these living wills. They, I mean, they have the requirement. It is a regulation. It is public. And, you know, the banks have been put on notice that they have to pass. So how optimistic or pessimistic should I be with the living will situation? No, I think it should make you more optimistic. And I think it is one of these things where no matter what the answer was, people were going to criticize what happened because if the banks had come in and they had all passed people have been like the regulators aren't taking it seriously enough this is all just you know sort of bushwab i think you're right i think that you should be optimistic because i think what it shows is that the regulators are actually requiring these banks to actually come up with resolution plans that are serious and the reality is if the banks don't 
pass, I think, by October, then that gives regulators considerably more leverage to actually force them to downsize. So there is going to be, I think, at least some pressure on the banks to come up with these plans. The other thing about the living wills is one of the virtues of them is they actually require the banks to think concretely about dying. Yeah. And that's something that we don't like to think about as people. And it's also something that I think in general corporations are very bad at thinking about. And so just forcing that, I think, begins a process that's actually probably a good one. I think the other thing is these corporations, these banks are, are so big and complex. And Bernie Sanders is right about the fact that they are too big still. Uh, but – one of the things these wills force uh, CEOs to do is to realize how much they don't know about their own businesses. And I think all those things are, are good things. Because in the past, it used to be the one rogue trader made people realize, oh, my yeah. God, we had that position? Yeah. And then they'd give the trader a name like the whale or the fab, right. whoever, and then it, but that would be the only means of finding right, out. Right, exactly. And yeah. now they're actually like saying, like, wait a second, what, what are we actually invested in? So I think those, those aspects of it are, are actually very good. You know how they always say that you know, the new set of regulations are meant to stop the last crisis, yeah. but the next crisis is going to come from somewhere else? Would the living wills? Had we had them that equivalent in 2007, would that actually have stopped the last crisis if well, they were able to unwind? Because I always hear that you know it wasn't even the banks. It was AIG and these other quasi-bank actors that really screwed us. Well, it depends on what you think. It would not have prevented. It would not have prevented the problems because the, the problems were caused in a way by such a fall down of the regulators in terms of what they let the banks lever up and mm-hmm. all this stuff. On the other hand, I do think Dodd-Frank would have helped, uh, let's say, mitigate or soften what that crisis was. Because I think by preventing the banks from leveraging up as much as they did, uh, higher capital requirements, putting derivatives on the open exchange rather than letting AIG basically keep them all behind closed doors, all of those things would have made, I think, a real difference. And if you had the living wills combined with a real way of unwinding these institutions, then we could have taken the banks under if we needed to. And I don't know if that would have helped the crisis exactly, but you certainly would have you know, made a lot of people happy. And, yeah. and we would not have had to do TARP probably. We would have sent a good message though. TARP was profitable. Yes, it was. <laughs> TARP was a Absolutely. good thing. So do you agree? This is what I think. I agree with Hillary's general assessment. I think you do too, where we don't have to break up, break up the banks. But I'm glad Bernie's saying it, not just as a fan of you know rhetoric or discourse. I think it's good to have someone outflanking you on one side to make your position seem more powerful, almost a good cop, bad cop to anyone who would you know, seek to oppose it. No, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think the reality is if you talk to people on Wall Street now, uh, you know, Hillary is definitely, if not their candidate, looks like a better alternative, I think. And and that's not because they like her plan or they like Dodd-Frank. They would very much be happy to go back to a Republican candidate. I think they would – well, Trump, I don't know if they want Trump. But they would be happy to have a, a – they would have been very happy to have a normal Republican yeah. who would repeal Dodd-Frank and basically let them go back to what they were doing. But I think there is something to what you're saying. I, and I also think Bernie – having Bernie send this message is good because he, she, he basically keeps pressure on Hillary to actually push through the stuff that she's talking about and not sort of back away or kowtow to Wall Street. All right. So this is my last question. We've talked about Bernie and Hillary and Wall Street. Give me one idea, one part of the Trump platform that you think makes a lot of sense and not enough people are talking about. I, uh, I, I actually think that his, his uh, recent statements about the Federal Reserve and the virtues of uh, low interest rates and the fact that a strong dollar sounds better than it actually is. I think of all the things he has said, that's probably the most sensible. I also like the fact that he wants to uh, – 
tax hedge fund managers at a regular rate. Carried interest, Carried yes. Interest. And, private, it's, and private equity, actually, yeah. That's a genius. Yeah. And he's going to make the Mexicans pay for all yeah, of it. That's uh, smart, too. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Jim Sirwicki writes the financial page for The New Yorker. He used to work at Slate. Did you know that? Thank you, James. Thanks for having me on. Casper is not only great mattresses, it's great mattresses at a great price. Now, when I say great, what do I speak of? Quality and cost. The quality is, you know, highly engineered mattresses. Uh, They combine springy latex and supportive memory foam. It's breathable. It sleeps cool. Important this time of year. The mattress, your regular mattress, is going to cost you, I don't know, 1500 bucks. I've spent way more than that on a mattress. The price point of Casper, 500 for a twin, 600 for a twin XL. It's 950 for a king. That's comparatively, unbelievably inexpensive. And the greatest thing about Casper is you get to try it risk-free. They offer free delivery and free returns with a 100-night home trial. If you don't love it, they will pick it up. They'll refund you everything. Casper understands the importance of truly sleeping on a mattress before you commit. It's not going to the showroom, lying down for 10 minutes. It's a hundred days. You're going to spend a third of your life on the mattress. If you're an eight hour sleep person, here's our special offer. $50 off any mattress by going to casper.com slash gist and using the promo code gist terms and conditions apply. The Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act would allow families of 9-11 victims to sue in court sponsors of terrorism, i.e. the Saudis. This bill is making its way through Congress, passed in the Senate, pending in the House. The White House says they oppose it. The Republican sponsor is John Cornyn, and the Democratic sponsor is with me now, Senator Charles Schumer of New York. Hello, Senator Schumer. Hi, Mike. Great to be with you. Thanks for being on. So there was a hearing uh, yesterday when we talked, and Dana Rohrbeck of uh, California had some experts before him, and he asked them this. How many of you believe that the royal family of Saudi Arabia did not know and were unaware that there was a terrorist plot being implemented that result in a historic attack on the United States leading up to 9-11? Is this a fair question? And if so, would you raise your hand? It's a fair question. I have not read the famous 28 pages that are in the report, um, but I would say this. I want those pages to be made public so everyone can see them. And second, if the Saudis were involved, uh, they should be sued in court and held responsible. So our bill doesn't take a position as to whether the Saudis were complicit. It wouldn't surprise me if they were, but I don't have the facts. But It certainly says that this should be tried in a court of law. The Saudis can defend themselves. And, you know, Mike, let me just say, the Saudis are making a huge fuss about this. If they weren't complicit, they'll get to prove it. If they were complicit, of course, they'll pay a price. That's fair. Well, Tim Romer, a 9-11 commission member who was congressman from Indiana, he, he, he didn't raise his hand. He says, just too complicated a question. And I think of the fact that when we say the Saudis and the Saudi royal family, we're talking about tens of thousands of people. So complicit can mean someone very, very far away from the decision-making ability of Saudi Arabia. Right. 
The Saudis, we know, have a relationship with the Wahhabi form of Islam, which is a militant form of Islam. There was just a story on the front page of the New York Times that that militant form of Islam, the Saudis paid for a lot of things to be mosques that profess this to be put in Kosovo, changed the whole Kosovo climate from one of moderate Islam into radical Islam. So we know the Saudis have a relationship with Wahhabi. Now, was there a direct knowledge and involvement with the actual 9-11? No one knows. That's why we need our bill. So you can go to court and prove it. And the families of the victims, who I have met with and talked to repeatedly, all they want is their day in court. That is fair. I don't see who can oppose it. Obviously, our administration and the State Department are opposing it because the Saudis don't like it. But from my point of view, too bad. <laughs> well, here's an, here's an argument against it. It's the same argument as diplomatic immunity. We don't have diplomatic immunity to protect them. We have it to protect us. So there's reciprocity. And with this bill, others like it, others that would, in a narrow way, weaken the foreign immunity statute, would that pass? That would perhaps open up United States citizens, United States government officials to being sued by courts in other lands. And as we know, courts in Saudi Arabia aren't quite up to the level of U.S. courts. Right. It's a fair question, but it's false for two reasons. First, our bill is extremely narrowly drawn. It only allows suit if a foreign government is shown to be complicit in doing terrorism on our shores, okay? The United States is not involved in terrorism in Saudi Arabia or any other country, number one. But number two, the law on sovereign immunity was narrowed by a court decision in, I think it was 2006 or 2007. So before that, the law was the way we want to make it, we want to restore it, and there weren't a lot of suits against the United States at all. So I think this is a straw man. I think this is a false argument, and uh, I think it's just being used by the Saudis because they don't want to go to court. And in fact, the fact that they're so vehemently opposed to going to court says to me they're worried about what the outcome would be. There was a report in the New York Times that the uh, Saudis threatened and then they officially backed away from this to sell U.S. securities, $750 billion in securities. Now, people always say that if we antagonize the Chinese, they'll sell communities. That's a little bit of cutting their own throats to spite us. But do you believe that that threat is a credible one? No, I don't. First, they don't have that much of our securities. China and Japan have much more. Second, you're right, they would cut their nose to spite their face uh, if they sold those securities, and I don't frankly believe they will. Now, there was a report, I don't know if it's a confusing report today, that says that Senator Charles Schumer and other proponents of the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act stuffed an amendment into the final draft, allowing the Attorney General and Secretary of State to stop any litigation against the Saudis in its tracks. I suppose this this uh, alleges that you worked so hard and spent your political capital on this bill only to thwart it in the end. I don't quite understand what your motivation would be, but I just sense. want to give you a minute. Yeah, I want you. To, I want to just give you a minute to respond to that report. Yeah, it's it's the report is totally false. The lawyers for the victim and the victims themselves have each put out letters and statements totally rebutting it. Let me give you three points. Number one, the provision he's talking about was not offered by me, but by Jeff Sessions, 
a Republican senator from Alabama. Senator Cornyn and I, he's a Republican from Texas, I'm a Democrat from New York, fought that provision, and we successfully prevented it from getting in the bill. What remains in the bill is simply a provision that is boilerplate language. The victims themselves and the lawyers say that that article was just bunk. And I frankly called the New York Post and asked for a retraction. The guy who wrote it never called us. He's, he's way off base. I want to ask you about how you see the neighborhood, Saudi Arabia, Iran, you oppose the Iran nuclear deal. Now, putting aside whether that would or wouldn't thwart Iranian ambitions, it's certainly going to give Iran a lot more money. We unfroze a lot of money. So with this money, presumably, they're going to be using it, as they have been, to fund Houthi rebels, to fund Hezbollah. So what we have is almost a, not almost, what we have is many instances of a Sunni Shia proxy wars in different areas in the Middle East. The Sunnis are the Saudis. The Shia are the Iranians. And can the United States help but get sucked into this war? How do we play it without taking a side in this Sunni versus Shia debate that isn't really our fight? Right. I think it's, I couldn't agree with you more. This is not our fight. The Sunnis and the Shias have been fighting from the time before America was discovered. And what we ought to be doing is protecting our homeland from terrorism, whether it's Sunni-originated terrorism or Shia-originated terrorism. We should not be trying to pick one side or the other or say this territory, this part of land should be run by the Shias, this by the Sunnis. That's not our fight. Our fight, our job is to protect uh, America from terrorism. And there have been Sunni terrorists and Shia terrorists, and we should go after both equally. But who should the United States' top ally in the Arab world be? I mean, Egypt is weak. Jordan's too small. These seem to be the two big choices. Yeah, Jordan is a good ally, and I think the king has done a pretty good job at clamping down on terrorism and being a good ally of ours. Uh, Egypt, CC, has been a better ally than certainly Morsi from before. But We don't have too many allies in the region, and I think as what happened in Iraq showed, uh, we can go there, we can put a lot of boots on the ground, loss of a lot of brave men and women, a trillion dollars spent, and after we leave, they go back to fighting. So I don't think it makes much sense to do that. We, with our new technologies and our abilities, we can do a very good job at protecting America against terrorism. And another ally in the region, frankly, are the Kurds, who have been pro-American and against terrorism. But we should not be embroiled in the fights in that part of the world. We should simply be protecting ourselves against terrorism. And with reconnaissance, surveillance, drones, we can do a pretty good job of that. But is this Fortress America? I mean, you have to look at an example like Tunisia, maybe the one spot in the Arab Spring where there is hope, and you have to want to foster those sort of democratic movements. So how do you do that without also becoming embroiled in Sunni, Shia, Saudi? Having, you know, hundreds of thousands of boots on the ground is a lot different than supporting a government that's friendly to the United States like Tunisia. And that was, and we thank New York Senator Charles Schumer. And now the spiel. One more question. Paul Manafort, Trump's advisor, told the Huffington Post, also great head of hair on that guy, that his boss would, quote, soften his stance on banning Muslims. This echoes what Joe Scarborough was talking about a couple weeks ago on his show, Morning Joe. 
and he's moving away from the Muslim ban. Now, you can say, yes, it's horrible that he ever said it in the first place. This is a vast improvement, though, as he moves moves forward, because there are a lot of people that could not support him. No, precisely no. Those people who couldn't support him because it was horrible should still not support him because it was horrible. You can't credit him for softening, for moving. You can't say, oh, he's moving away. Therefore, he's no longer horrible. He's not a no longer horrible guy. He's a still horrible guy who's also contradicting himself. It's not a pivot. It's not a move away. Do not let him get away with that. Do not let him get away with talking about positioning and politics. You should hang it on him like a millstone because of how stupid and impractical and self-defeating and bad for the United States place in the world it is. And then further hang him with that millstone because he never said it was wrong. Nothing close to a mea culpa. It's not a bad idea mitigated by a pivot. It's a bad idea compounded by a contradiction. Contradiction, not pivot. You could hashtag that. All right, now that I got that off my chest, I could dissect some of the less life-threatening nonsense to spew from Mr. Trump today at a press conference in Bismarck, North Dakota. Why, you might ask, do we as the media keep playing all these quotes? Well, for one, unlike the largely reticent Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump actually answers questions. In fact, he kind of can't stop answering questions. Making America great again. Okay, how about a couple of more? A couple more, that means one or two, right? Well, after saying that, he said... Okay, how about one or two more? One or two, right? Okay, then he said... Okay, one more. All right, after saying one or two more, he took five more, but he still wasn't done because he noticed David was trying to ask a question. Got to reward David. David, go ahead, David. He wrote a couple of good stories about me, so I have to... I have to... Good story, pat, pat. And then it was done. Nope, there was one more. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Oh, what role was Congressman Craig Kramer playing in the administration? The Trump well, administration? well, just a talented person. And then he pulled a North Dakota congressman on the stage, and that guy took a question, and finally... Thank you, everybody. <laughs> thank you. The answers weren't always sensible. They weren't always factual. But he does answer the media's questions. If you hold press conferences... And if you're a candidate, you get to be on cable news. That seems like a fair bargain to me. But of course, the answers, the assertions should still be scrutinized, and I will do my part. Here now, one of his more questionable utterances. With the coal miners, they love doing what they're doing. Hillary Clinton, and it's such an important product, Hillary Clinton should not be putting them out of business. Because Hillary Clinton invented natural gas. I don't know if you know that. Because, because Hillary Clinton's also a geologist. And 15 years ago, she was like, hey, guys, how about fracking? Oh, and this was despite the fact that Trump at that very press conference described Hillary Clinton as this big opponent of fracking. You know what's hurting coal? Market forces are hurting coal. And to quote Donald Trump in that same press conference. Well, to me, a market force is a beautiful <laughs> force. Yeah, go ahead. But let's for a second go back to that first part of Trump's assertion. I asked a couple of them, why don't you go into some different profession? They said, because we love going after coal. I'll never forget the answer. You know, you think it's dangerous and you're going deep down into these incredible crevices. I say, wow, but they love doing what they do. That's what they do. What? I mean, I'm sure they love having good paying jobs, but who loves coal mining? I've never been coal mining, but I have seen the documentary, Barbara Cobble's Harlan County, USA. I've heard the phrase, well, it's pretty good. You know, it's not exactly working in a coal mine, right? Because coal mines suck. That phrase is the opposite of a day at the beach. 
working in a coal, even the songs about working in a coal mine are all about how much working in a coal mine sucks. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, I got to sit down. Working in the coal mine, whoops, about to slip down. You're about to slip down. Five o'clock in the morning, I'm already up and gone. Lord, I'm so tired. How long can this go on? Lord, I'm so tired. Because I make a little money hauling coal by the ton. When Saturday rolls around, I'm too tired to have fun. That's working in a coal mine for you. All this nostalgia about how great it is to work in a coal mine or the good factory jobs. Working in a factory is terrible. Getting paid 35 bucks an hour plus benefits for working in a factory, that is okay. But back when those jobs were plentiful, the entire narrative was not about, hey, working in a factory, isn't that great? It was all about how the kids didn't want to work in the factory like their daddy done. All the songs were about how working in the factory and the coal mines crushed your soul, filled your lungs with bad stuff too. There's nothing good, inherently good, about factory or coal mine work. The pay is good, but the factory, the coal mine, working on the docks, cotton picking, come on, these are bad jobs. No one loves them. But of course, no one wants to lose them. I mean, even if you have one of these bad jobs, you don't want to hear those horrible and chilling words, words that embody the cold heartedness that holds a worker in such little regard. You know the words, you're fired. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Mary Wilson, in her soul, loves to get into the crevices of the audio files. It's what she does. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, started as a doorboy. The doorboys sat alone in the dark, waiting to let carts carrying coal and miners through doors that connected the passages. The doorboys opened and shut these doors, which controlled the flow of air within. If the doors were not quickly shut, deadly gases could build up and explode. Everyone's safety depended on the boys doing their job correctly. And as chief content officer of the Panoply Network, Andy Bowers remembers the late shifts, the rumble of the mine. He took pride in propping the roof with wooden beams, in the drilling of holes, in the preparation of explosives, in the blasting and the picking of loose coal, and in the approval of the Ezra Klein podcast. This was a set of decisions he thought of as craft. The gist, every night I'd come home covered in soot. My children could not tell if I was a man or a ghost, but I would tell them, kids, there's a new soot yard that opened up down the street, and we would laugh and laugh and cough and cough. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.